and welcome to Humans of Space, a podcast from the makers of BBC Sky Night magazine and hosted by Neve Shaw that looks at the individuals who shape our understanding of the universe and how they got to be where they are today. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skynightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. And it's another week of Humans of Space and people I know who happen to be working in the space sector. And uh, this week, I'm talking to Peter Fisher. This is somebody that I had wanted to uh, bring on to the first season of Humans of Space. But no, we have to wait. We have to wait for season two. And uh, we've managed to get him today. And uh, Peter has a really interesting job. He works in the area of rovers, which we're going to get him to talk about in a second. I don't think I know anybody else who deals in the business of rovers. And uh, Peter's an awful messer as well. Um, The first time I met Peter, I thought he was very serious, the way all people are when you meet them first. And then as he was walking out of the lift, he pressed all the buttons of all the floors and he left me there with a lift full of strangers And uh, yeah, I vowed revenge and I got him back more than once. Hello, Peter. How are you? I'm fine. And I'd like to formally apologize for pressing all the buttons in the elevator or what you call the lift. Yes, I know. It was, yeah, it was, it was, um, it was shameful, shameful behavior, but at least I knew what I was up against. So Peter, you are an engineer, but you work in rovers. That's mad. It's pretty mad. What's your, um, of of all the missions so far, of all the different rover missions so far, which one do you admire the most or which one do you go, oh my God, that was so cool, what they did? Well, I mean, the stuff that's happening on Mars right now is really fantastic. But what happened on the moon 40, 50 years ago was, I would say, more exciting because it was done without mm. hardly any of the technology that we have today. So the two big examples there is obviously the Apollo era LRVs. You know, the the golf cart on the moon. That was a remarkable story. Uh, But the one that I think I'm more interested in is is Lunacod. So those are two Russian rovers, very large, um, like in the order hundreds of kilograms, like, you know, five to 800 kilograms, eight wheels, and they were operated remote control. And they were uh, operated by guys who were used to driving tanks because when you drive a tank, you have to look through a very small window or a periscope and they felt that those were the best guys to drive these rovers on the moon because you have high latency it's, uh, and you have a very poor view. The camera views back then were terrible. and They still had to try to operate the rover. And when was that? Tell us a little bit more about that mission because I think a lot of us um, listening wouldn't know as much as you about rovers. When, when was that mission? So Lunacod 1 and 2 were back uh, in the Apollo era days. So uh-huh. back in the late 60s, early 70s, a long time ago. The Russians were very close to, or they said they were very close to landing a person on the moon, mm-hmm. but they beat the Americans uh, in this aspect and landing an unmanned craft, an unmanned vehicle on the moon and, and driving it around quite successfully. In fact, the one did something like 40 kilometers, which wow. is a record that was only recently beat by one of the Martian rovers. And has the technology changed much since that, that original design? On the mechanical side, there's always been improvements in material, lightweight material, stuff like that. But the big difference now is um, computing power. I mean, everybody mm-hmm. knows the story of the Saturn V rocket had as much computing power as kind of this mouse that I'm holding up. Yeah. <laughs> so now we have much more powerful computers and the way the communications work and the cameras, it's all so much better. And then being able to model it all mm-hmm. and, uh, and predict how it's going to work. The fact that they could they could fly a craft to a foreign planet, air brake, deploy parachutes, do a bunch of other stuff all completely autonomously yeah. on Mars because you yeah. can't you can't talk to it in real time. Uh, shows you how advanced the the modeling is. Yeah, it's a remarkable. But even just to think about, um, it's remarkable that the Russians did that. If you think about it, they're they're remotely controlling a rover on the moon. Like that's that's incredible with the technology that they had, the limited technology that they had. Yeah, back then it was it was quite remarkable. Um, yeah, it just when you see pictures and video of it, it's it is really neat to see. What uh, it, what what stage in in life did you first hear about that mission? Was it very was it a long time ago, or was it when you started your career in in what you're in now? I'll be perfectly honest. It was it was when I started researching lunar yeah. rovers. Um, we were I was working for a company that designed, strangely enough, eight wheeled off-road vehicles um, that, that were designed to tackle very hostile terrain. 
And we were approached by uh, our country's space agency and asked if we would like to uh, assist with some projects they were working on. So my boss didn't think that was a good use of time. So I volunteered to do it instead. And uh, that, that worked out quite well for me, I think. <laughs> but as soon as you start doing research, you know, all this information is so readily available now. It yeah. takes, you know, a few days, a few hours of research. And it's remarkable how much you can learn. What made you decide to do that that day with, with your boss? Like, why did you go, no, I'm not letting this pass. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. Oh, it's just, I was getting a little bored with another project. Um, <laughs> but why wouldn't you? Everyone knows that space is kind of at the the height of engineering. Mm. We call it the aerospace uh, world because between high-performance aircraft or any aircraft and in space, this is really where it's at the peak of mechanical and electrical and everything else engineering. Mm. Um, mm. You know, So <laughs> when you get a chance to participate in it, um, you would be a very good engineer if you said no. Yeah. It's it's really interesting, isn't it, though, like that you were in a in a parallel universe almost like you were you were in an industry where the technology was was perfectly suited for rovers. And yet um, the industry that you were in just didn't didn't see that as anything that they were particularly interested in. But because you had the conversation that day at that time and you decided to pursue it, you're now working for Canaden- Canadensis, Canadensis, isn't that the right way to pronounce it? Canadensis. Um, which, you know, I mean, among our, you know, the people that I know, I mean, you're very well established and um, in what you do. Yeah, it's a, there's a few reasons. Yeah, there's a few reasons for that. The, the technology, this specific technology we were using, almost none of it can translate into space. Um, you know, think about most vehicles that run around on Earth are driving on rubber tires. So starting from the ground up, well, we can't use rubber. And those rubber tires are normally filled with air. We can't use that. So uh, we can't use engines that burn gasoline. I mean, we have to start over. So back back then, electric vehicles were not uh, very common like like they are today. Uh, even even 15 years ago or 12 years ago when we got started in this, electric vehicles were a complete novelty and not very successful. So what we were able to translate into something useful for space was the the idea of how to make stuff, right? The idea of being able to make things very quickly and especially how to drive a vehicle off-road, how to design a vehicle as a cohesive uh, collection of subsystems that works and just driving over rough terrain. This is not something that most um, typical aerospace engineers would do. <laughs> so um, I have a rural background, we'll say, uh, a, growing up as a farmer. So we get to spend a lot of time driving vehicles off-road and when we're not doing it for work we're doing it for fun and when you um took that challenge on how long ago was that actually what year was that that you did that 2008 so 2008 right so where did you start what was the first when you kind of because it was probably just you you said i want to do this as a side project and he was like right off you go and so obviously you did your research that's how you found out about the russian rovers and everything um and where did you start then after doing kind of an extensive Literature well, it was <laughs> so we we joined with a consortium of other companies that needed some um, help with designing the actual vehicle. They, they they could design other space systems and cameras and and power systems, but they didn't know much about vehicles. So we started working with them. Uh, I I put together a few different concepts. I think six weeks after we first started that program, I was at a conference presenting the work, which was a bit uh, nerve wracking. Yeah, and within six months after that, we had our first running prototypes, and then the following year, we brought them all to Hawaii and drove around in the mountains for a couple of weeks to demonstrate that they worked. So, what was the first? What's the first engineering um, obstacle that you have to what cha- what shifts in your head? Right, so you've got a land vehicle. <clears throat> Clearly, it's it can be adapted to space. So, what's the first thing? you have to think about is it the is it the wheels or is it was that the first thing that you tackled the main obstacles and you got to start from these is the environment is yeah ridiculous so hard vacuum so there goes most of my material that i'd like to use <laughs> uh we mentioned rubber and and pneumatic tires but it also extends to you know, rubber hoses mm. seals you know mm. uh, lubricants all that stuff would boil off so we have to narrow down what material going to use then you've got ridiculous thermal problems um, mm. in that 
when something starts to produce heat, you got to find a good way to get rid of it. Can't use uh, convection like we do on Earth for almost everything. We have to use uh, conduction and radiation. So you you conduct it to a radiator on the outside mm. of the vehicle, and that radiator has to be facing the cold of night. Uh, even when the sun's shining on the moon, you can still face a radiator to the cold of night and radiate heat out. Um, so that's the whole vehicle has to be designed with this in mind. You can't add it on later. And then, of course, the the, the problems of limited gravity. Um, some days I get up in the morning, I feel like it'd be nice if we had like half the gravity that we normally do. But but when yeah. you're trying to operate a vehicle, gravity is a good thing. Um, so operating one six gravity is 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 tricky. You need it's hard to make enough traction, so you have to really have effective wheels, and uh, which means they're probably going to be you know larger than you might expect. That's made even more difficult by once again remembering that we can't use any rubber tires. So mm. <laughs> that was so we we literally started with the wheel, a couple of wheel designs, and uh, and took it from there. It's a massive vertical learning curve, was it? Yeah, and it's uh, there were a few I would call them experts on on rover design. Nobody had really flown anything though. The problem with um, this field is that everyone who's already done it went off and died. Um, Hardly anybody's left from the Apollo era. Yeah. And certainly certainly there weren't going to be any uh, old Russian guys who want to talk to us about it no. <laughs> from Lunacod. And the um, and most of the guys from Apollo had worked on LRV were very, very old or had passed on. Yeah. So we have to uh, we had to just um, learn as you go and read as much research as you can f- find out. But the reality was none of it was truly tested. Like there <laughs> There, there were no TRL-9 rovers at the time. TRL-9 being something that's been tested multiple times in uh, in actual conditions. So so that was, uh, it's kind of nice to have an open, an open, like a blank sheet in front of you. Yeah. That was the pretty much the blankest sheet I ever saw. Yeah. And and you just, um, you just tested, tried, tested, tried, adjusted, tested, tried, adjusted. So it was like, you would you would try something and then you'd either bring it back or move it forward in terms of a level or or a strength or a or a an input or is is that how you did it? How did you set your parameters? Oh yeah, well, it, it was like I said, it's a pretty blank sheet. So starting with well, what what are my what's my heaviest? How heavy can I be? What's my payload? So the lander is going to land on the moon. How how much payload can it take? And then you first start with figuring out how much of that payload is going to be the rover. And how much stuff does a rover have to carry? Yeah. Um, so you build something. Um, the next iteration, you you realize, okay, I, I, it'd be better if I if I move this by ten percent. Be better if I made that a little different. Or when we did our testing, we got halfway through the testing, we realized, well, that's not that's not that's not good. We got to change that. So you get by, and the next time you get to do a, another version, you try to incorporate all these things you've learned about. Um, but it's it's a bit of an art and maybe less of a science trying mm. to balance out all these different competing, uh, characteristics. Um, it's been said before that engineering is the, the art of elegant compromise, mm. trying to find the best compromise that allows mm. the system as a whole to perform the best. Mm. And the one thing we don't really have to worry about on, um, this type of engineering compared to almost every other form of terrestrial engineering is we actually don't care about the cost of it, which is which is a relief because sometimes in regular engineering projects it's all about you know just, the dollars and cents. In this case, we're not that concerned about it. In fact, if we spend a lot more money to save a kilogram, it's well worth it. Mm. Since you know, since la- the landing cost to the surface of the moon is anywhere between you know two hundred thousand and a million dollars per kilogram. So you you got your concept. So at what stage? Did the kind of oh my god I think we've I think we have it. Uh, how many weeks did you did it, did you get to that where you were kind of going? Because you know uh, I think anybody who's technical there's the fuzzy ground where your your forward brain isn't is is working, but it's really all the logic is happening in the in you know in in your subconscious, and then it kind of pops forward, and then you kind of then it kind of happens, and it all starts to come together that was how many weeks or or at what stage did you go okay i think i think we have it now we have it we have it. we just need to now just fine tweak it like at what stage in the how many weeks in was that i wouldn't say weeks i'd say years 
in 2013, so we've been working at it for about five years. Uh, we ended up doing a demonstration um, as, a, as a co-demonstration with NASA where they provided the payload and we provided the rover. And we had developed the, the rover to accept many different payloads, not just one specific payload because we didn't, as we developed it, we didn't know what the payloads were going to be. <laughs> so we had to make it kind of like, kind of like a tractor, a farm tractor where you can mm-hmm. put anything you want behind it or a pickup truck where you can put anything you want in the bed. But we, uh, we worked on the rover for about a year and NASA worked on their payload for about a year. And then we had a meeting in Florida that took about a week and they integrated their payload within the first few hours, just loaded on with a forklift. And with, by the end of the day, it was functional. So that, that opened a lot of eyes. Um, and then, of course, we, we did the, the demo in Hawaii. It was all successful. Everything worked quite well. And then I think we, we started to say, okay, I think we're definitely on the right track here. Of course, then, then Canada decided not to uh, participate in that particular project, and NASA built their own rover. So, Yeah, but you learned fun. loads out of it. It wasn't. So, so it, just in terms of the timeline, so when you said to your boss at the time or your colleague at the time, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, I think we should do this. So that got you from 2008 to 2013. That's how, that's how long all that took. Yep, and then the Canadian Space Agency continued development of rovers and rover components, such as you know wheels and drive systems, and we ended up winning a bunch more contracts and and really advancing kind of the art of these rovers on on how to put them together and how to design them. And every time you design a subsystem and you go through a certain amount of testing, then then that kind of forms the basis for the next one. Yeah. You've must, you must have learned loads on that first one. So that question that I was asking you, so at what stage of that five years did you have that moment? You know what I mean? It's like an aha moment or like, oh yeah, I think, I think I have it. I think I have it. And then it's, and then it's getting more sophisticated, getting more skilled, but essentially the, the, the fog of, of a bunch of text and a bunch of information has actually now become something that you can confidently say, I'm, 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 I think I, I think I've cracked this. Yeah, I think that process. I mean, it happened probably in my head earlier. Yeah. Then uh, I Physically. guess in my yeah. Then <laughs> then I believed. So <laughs> we had a concept that we were confident it was going to work, but until you actually build it and see it work, and then the other thing is, it doesn't matter if it works or not if you can't demonstrate and convince other people that it works. Yeah. So at first, you know, it took us about five years to convince the Canadian Space Agency that the style of rover that we were building which is known for being quite rugged, but quite simple as well. Um, it took a while for us to convince them that that was the better path. Engineers have this terrible habit. We get, we get fascinated with our own work and we love to build things that are like watches, right? The most expensive watches have like a million little moving parts inside of them. And, and we get all carried away Rube Goldberg stuff. <laughs> uh, and sometimes we have to dial that back and, and say, you know, we're, we can make it simpler. Um, A good engineering design is one where another engineer will look at and say, well, yeah, that's obvious. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Yeah, it's, it's right? beautiful. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so simplified, yeah. So that's kind of how we, what we pursued. And that, that started to catch on after a while. It, it just took a while. What was that like, though? Did you have a, you must have been very proud, though, Peter. You know what I mean? When you actually got it to a demo model that is being taken seriously by NASA. Yeah, that was quite something. Um, I actually remember I was helping out down in Florida. A friend of mine would run these, uh, he called it Lunabotics at the time, these contests where university students from all around the world could show up with a robot they designed and built to a set of rules, and it, we ha- we see whose was the best at excavating, for example. So we went down there, and so we spent a couple weeks on the down at Kennedy Space Center, and there was a kiosk at the visitor center, something about um, exploration. And the, they had a pictures of the Mars rovers 
And then it was a circular kiosk as I walked around. Then there's a picture of like LRV. And then there, I walked around a little farther. And there was a picture of the demo that we did in Hawaii with all of our rovers on. So that was quite a, um, yeah, I remember that quite clearly. So that was, I had a good day that day. So, yeah. So there you were standing beside. So LRV is the lunar rover vehicle of, uh, that was on the moon from the Apollo era. So that's pretty good company, isn't it, to be? I, yeah, we were, we were pretty happy about it. <laughs> yeah, it was great. And have you learned, like if you were to see yourself from 2013 and yourself now, would you go, oh my gosh, I knew so little. I know so much more now. Um, I would hope that's the way it goes. I would probably <laughs> have uh, noticed how much nicer my hair was back then. Um, <laughs> but certainly we are like, we are still learning. And the, the big thing we learn is it's a, it's a team effort. So I have stopped trying to be the one that knows everything about it and recognize that we have to rely on our colleagues and coworkers. Um, I've got specialists helping us out here uh, on our team that, that know everything about, you know, thermal stuff or, you know, electrical engineers, everyone's got to work together as a team. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> so at some point I just, I don't get too worried whether, whether I know all the answers, as long as I got someone working with me that does, that's good enough for me. And so you you lead up a team there at um, at a division of of Canadensis and and how many people did you take on in the last few years in order to work with you and and moving forward? We're still a pretty small team. Um, our company, since I joined the company in two thousand and seventeen, we've grown from about eight or nine people up to about fifty. Fifty um, five zero. Yes. Yeah. It's been a busy few years. Yeah. We started up the Stratford. So that's when we started up the Stratford division and we started with three people and we're, we have eight people in the office now. So it's still a, a pretty small bunch. Um, mm. We work pretty hard on a couple different vehicle projects, uh, not just space vehicles. We have some other ones as well that uh, like some diesel hybrid vehicles that we're working on. Um, but it's, yeah, it's pretty exciting work. And Peter, is it hard for you to recruit? Is because is, is it very specialized? Is it hard to find people that are, that have the skills that you require? If you're looking for anybody a bit senior, like from intermediate to senior engineer, then there's some certain uh, tasks, uh, certain uh, skill sets that we need to find. That could be a bit tricky to find the right person, especially if they're at a high level. You know, they demand a certain salary, so we have to make sure they're a good fit. But when it comes to recruiting junior engineers or or students, no, we have to beat them off with a stick. Yeah, uh, they, it's an easy, very easy uh, thing to recruit for because. You know, it's a it's a very interesting line of work. Um, are they mainly mechanical engineers, or what kind of engineers are you? Are they all engineers? Like, what what kind of 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 people are you? Um, would would fit well if people are like listening and thinking about like a, a career and stuff? What what kind of of skills fit well in your business? Yeah, so it's um, I'm not sure how it is in the rest of the world, um, but in in Canada and I think in the United States as well, the term engineer. In Canada, especially, the term engineer refers to someone who's gone to university and has done gone through the you know required testing and has got a certificate, a diploma, and and uh, has a license to pay and all that good stuff. There's two other levels below, just below that, in terms of the length of schooling you have to do. Uh, so, an engineering technician or a technologist, they tend to have more hands-on uh, experience, and sometimes engineers have have less hands-on, but are are better at the analysis. Yeah. So there's a lot of overlap between these roles. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we make sure that we have all of these covered. Uh, so yeah. not just on the mechanical side either, but electrical engineers and, and technologists are, you know, we have, we have them working for us as well. And, and then the same goes for, uh, you know, software engineers. There's a lot of software that goes along with these platforms as well. Great. So it's like there's this room for everybody really, isn't there? As long as you have that kind of logical mindset or, or yeah. even ingenuity of some some shape or form. There's a space for you, literally in the space sector. So so let's just shift a little bit to space. So going back to that day when you said to your boss, "Listen, I'm going to give that a go." Did you always intend, or w- was it an aspiration of yours to build a career in the space sector? Uh, no, I had no interest. Um, I hadn't thought about it. It's not like I thought about it and said, "Oh, I, that doesn't seem like it's fun," um, but when uh when sometimes you have to pivot sometimes you see something and you have to mm. go for it right mm. um so this was an opportunity just 
I felt that if I didn't do it, I'd probably kick myself. Um, and I would stand by that today. I, I enjoy working with off-road vehicles. That's just another type of off-road vehicles, but with less air. Mm, just a bit, just a, just a tad. And, um, so would you, so what, what was your relationship or your interest in space before that day, for instance, like just on a personal level or, you know, on a social level? <clears throat> I had, you know, I was, a I was very into science as a kid, you know, good. And, uh, all the STEM, the STEM, uh, classes, I excelled in all those. So when there was something interesting about space, I, I took some interest, not considering I would eventually work in that field. Um, yeah. Well, I had watched the you know lots of shuttle launches uh, on the on the TV screen, <laughs> never in person until I think 2013. I got a chance to see one in person, but it was uh, yeah. So just as a, as a kid, I just uh, I was interested, but not enough to to pursue it academically. Yeah, and and there are were there uh, were there can was there a Canadian presence in um, like were there Canadian astronauts in your younger years, or is that something that's that's come about more recently? We were definitely behind uh, the states. Um, there were some uh, Canadian astronauts, um, most of whom I've had a chance to meet at an event or something, and they're all really fantastic people. But there's only like, I don't know, it's like 20 of them maybe total <laughs> in Canada. So we have a very small core of astronauts. Um, and when I was growing up, there really wasn't much of a Canadian space industry. It's We were under, we underrepresented um our, our, the funding that we provide to our Canadian Space Agency is per capita. It's you know what is it a quarter of what it is in the states. Mm. So it's a pretty small budget. We do a lot of really interesting work with that amount of money. And the Canadian Space Industry, it's, it's Canadian Space Agency, is uh, it's got some really neat projects on the go right now. And so we're happy to see that they're they're growing and moving in the right direction. Um, so I think Canada is becoming more competitive in space for sure. We have a pretty good. Um, heritage already um that we're we're trying to build on i mean mm. canada was provided the robotic arms for yeah. shuttle and, and iss, ISS and, yeah. and are doing the same for the lunar gateway that's coming up mm. and and lots of canadian companies have contributed to many of the other projects that that the u.s is known for mm-hmm. and i think my favorite example is uh, a small company in quebec uh, built the landing legs that went on the uh the first uh well, the la- that were on Eagle, the Eagle lander on the Apollo era. So uh, technically what? Canada was the first on the moon. <laughs> yes, it was. I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. And did you know that at the time? Did you Were you told that in school? Like they say, you know, the legs of the rover were, or the lander were, uh, were Canadian. Did they, did they, or, or did you need to kind of, as you got, as your career moved forward into the sector that you're in now, you discovered that? Yeah, it wasn't taught. That stuff wasn't taught to me when I was younger. We just learned little tidbits that are kind of fun. Yeah. Um, One interesting thing about uh, the Canadian space industry is that it's uh, it's been a big contributor to the the Apollo effort back in the sixties and seventies. There was a a very famous um, uh, plane called the Avro Arrow that the government was was funding. That Avro was building, and it was a world class. interceptor i guess and anyway it got canceled high profile movies have been made about it every can canadian weeps and moans at this terrible loss but what happened was uh, you know i don't know how many say ten thousand or five thousand at least uh highly qualified personnel were kind of out of work and many of them ended up on the on the um on the apollo project either moving down to the states and working on that project there or or doing a little bit of work here in canada so it's uh, it's a neat it's a neat story, but kind of a sad story for Canada. But uh, it's the way and it is. did you know that when you were growing up? Did Canada tell you that again, or is it or is it stuff you found out after the fact? Yeah, it's never it was never really talked about. Um, I, I don't remember a lot of stuff. I don't remember a lot of stuff about space being taught to us in school. A little and, bit in science class, maybe. Yeah, and yet there was a, there was a significant input from Canada in all of those, you know, formative uh, missions that, that kind of inspired a lot of us. And um, and then how much did the did the Apollo missions impact you as a kid then? Well, I wasn't born till they were over. So. Well, I, I know that. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> so how did they impact me? Well, I, I suppose my parents would have had some interest in them. Um, 
they they were all shut down before before I was born. So we we didn't really uh you know when I open up my science textbook and I learn about the first men to walk on the moon, see some cool pictures. I mean, it's very interesting stuff. But of course, I find it more interesting now as an adult when I realize how big of a technical challenge it was. So when did your interest in space grow then? And and or who or where did this come from? I would suggest, you know, I'm interested in many things, science and engineering. And but I would say it, it grew mostly after I started working in the industry. Okay. As I learned about it and did the research, it becomes it's it's fascinating to and, and then getting paid to do the research is even better, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um and so um so what kind of kid were you then? What were you like? Oh boy, that depends who you ask, I guess. <laughs> um, I was a farm kid. I was did very well in school, but didn't really like it. Because who really does like school? I did. Oh, oops. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, like liked making stuff. Am I, you know, live work on the farm. Farmers generally have to have some sort of. There's there's a little bit of engineer in every farmer or most farmers. They often have to fix their own equipment and sometimes even make their own equipment. And so I grew up surrounded by that sort of activity. And yeah, but like, where did your passion for it come from then? You know what I mean? Like you could be surrounded by something, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's going to be uh, something that you really want. So for instance, my mom grew up in a family of traditional Irish musicians. And so every time we'd meet up, they'd belt trad music at me, but I don't have a passion for it. So why, why did you take to it? Um, I think engineers are can be made, but they also have to be a little bit born, right? You need to have a you need to have an, like an attraction to things and understand the way things move and and stuff like that. And then that drives your educational choices. Um, I went into engineering school right out of high school, but I didn't actually like it at the time very much. So I went back to the farm, and I um, I also took a winter job as a mechanic working mm. on power sports equipment like off road vehicles. And uh, then um, became much more interested in engineering. And when I went back to engineering school, after taking a short break of 10 years, um, I found it uh, much, much more interesting uh, being able to uh, see how the theory of engineering is applied to, you know, making stuff. So, so that's, I'd say that's where my love for engineering grew very, very quickly as I was, uh, you know, working on on machines and fixing them and, and and operating them stuff like that so do you think it was just a case that the first time you studied it you couldn't see the application of it but then having had time to tinker away um in those years as a mechanic you the the information had a different value to you the second time around that's definitely part of it the other thing was that even though i did quite well in school as a younger person I never could learn how to write neatly. I was a terrible, a terrible handwriting. I was a complete slob. And when I went to engineering school the first time, there was a lot of focus on producing drawings. You had to draw sketches of something, then oh, you had to make yeah. a drawing of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it didn't matter what I drew. I always got marked down because it was messy. It had smudges on and pen and paper and pencil and paper don't agree with me. When I went back to engineering school the second time, things had progressed from paper to computer screens. And then I was just as neat as everybody else. Isn't and that interesting? Isn't that interesting? <laughs> that's just, that's, I had the same issue when I did engineering, um, the engineering drawing. Oh my gosh. I, I, I just, I hated it. They used to get you to draw out the letters. You remember? Cause like this would all be about like doing your CAD drawings. And I had to draw like a, a baler and a tractor and a, um, Oh, they were just, they were, I hated them so much. I hated doing them so much and everybody else would be flying through them. And there was just like scribbles and, you know, um, using my eraser to clean up my page and it's terrible. And it, it was a huge waste of time for me. And it's so it, true I, at the time I could even imagine like, how is this helping do anything? And now that I'm you know, actually a, a real engineer, I suppose. I still don't do drawings. I <laughs> I work with people that are way better. That, that you, you like if you hadn't have gone back, you would have always thought, no, I would have hated engineering. Like it's just something as random as your handwriting can actually get in the way. You know, and like for me, like I think my degree in engineering was largely lost on me because it was so theoretical, and I need to do things very practically. So, so my relationship with knowledge really shifted when we got into the era of video. 
you know, and um, I went back and I realized that I understood an awful lot more and I had this incredible thirst for knowledge, but books and me, I mean, I can do it, but I just, I just don't, it doesn't, um, it, it doesn't, it isn't the most appealing way for me to, to learn things. It's either give me something to do with my hands and I'll think as I go or let me see something and then I'll write notes. But if I actually have to be static and just read something, it's, when when you're talking about something that's so three dimensional, it was just a total waste of time for me. So I was, I did really oh just okay in my exams, and I had no passion for engineering. Um, and it was only really when I went back to do my PhD that the that the thirst for knowledge came back. But it really came back in the area in the era of YouTube, and that's when everything changed for me. When I realised that 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 that's why I do what I do now. Yeah, well, it's probably the same. It's probably the same thing. I would. I liked computers and CAD programs because you could take an, a three D object that's stuck inside your head, and you mm. can put it. You can put it on the screen, so now it's something more useful because it's just stuck inside your head. Doesn't do anything. Yeah. And I could see the same thing for being able to, you know, people be able to express themselves with, you know, with with YouTube and with any of these other apps that you can get what's inside your head and get it onto the screen really quickly and easily. Mm. It's. I think it's important because I think there's different types of learners, and I think people people take in information in a different way. And certainly in my formative years, it was all text and textbooks, and that that suited a certain type of learner. And I faked it, like I was just somebody that learned stuff off by heart. But actually, my real skill really only came much later in life. You know, so that's really interesting. And you were um you were a farmer then uh, as well, weren't you? For for a while, Peter, you're a potato farmer, which is Amazing. Well, we grew lots of things that were terrible, like broccoli, just awful. Broccoli's hey, good for you. Bro- oh, it could be, but what's the point of eating it if it's just it's just the texture is I, yummy. Oh no, the that's, taste you're, you're is wrong yummy. That. No, broccoli's <laughs> terrible, but we grew a lot of potatoes. And I really like that. That was a, a high degree of mechanization on when you farm potatoes. So you got to work with a lot of very cool machines. Yeah. Um, so I was I would do everything from work the field to plant them spray them, hill them, and then help harvest them as well. So I really enjoyed that, um, which is why The Martian is my favorite movie. Yeah. Why did you like that? Just the the fact that it can be broken down into achievable chunks or like what what was it that you liked about it? Um, I I really just, the machinery for potato farmers is just the coolest stuff. It's huge. Um, (laughs) It's got a really difficult task to pull potatoes out of the ground and sorting them and, and put them in a truck without bruising them is quite difficult. Um, and so they're all quite fantastic. Oh, riding around the, the big tractors. Who wouldn't like that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I could see it. And particularly that you have to control. I saw drone footage there just the other night. I was mesmerized. I watched it a few times, actually. So they had a drone off. I don't think it was potato. I think it was like some sort of field of like, I want to say like corn or something. It was like long grass kind of thing. And so there was two, there was two, um, there was two kind of trucks uh, in parallel with the, the baler or the harvester and you know that they have a pipe that then goes down to the collection tractor whenever you, you yeah, probably, I know exactly what you're talking about but they're, they're doing really, silage are they doing okay they're doing silage right so so one so the pipe was feeding into one and this one was getting really full and they did this really cool thing the tractor that was collecting the the grass excuse my terminology it's all wrong and um, they obviously gave hit the, the guy that was full a nod and literally they did this beautiful dance this seamless dance where he headed off and the other guy went in and it was because the tractor guy extended the arm of the the chute towards the other guy until he got sorted and then suddenly they were just lined up again. It was actually a ballet because you could see it from the drone point of view. It's beautiful. So the precision, I get it. I get the precision and the lines and everything. I I get it. I get that. And I would say that that would take a long time to master those kind of skills. Yeah. There's actually an increasing amount of crossover between the farming industry and the space industry. Um, When I left farming, we were just getting into the era of GPS. And what I mean by that is not just knowing where you are, but actually using it to control the tractors hmm. and the other equipment. So so we were able to make perfectly straight rows like that did not deviate more than one inch wow. uh, for the length of the field. Um, now, now tractors are able to do some levels of autonomy going up and down the field. Um, and this is all made possible by a, you know, the extensive GPS, you know, satellites that are up there coupled with, you know, a bit of ground technology to make it more accurate. Um, it's really, really interesting stuff. And so 
farming's big business, the if they can increase their yields by you know percentage points, it's worth quite a bit of money. Mm. So it's uh, it's really neat to see some of that stuff. A modern tractor, when you sit inside of it, is like looks like the inside of a almost like the inside of an airliner in the cockpit. Wow, yeah, no, I haven't been in one in years. And um, my my some of my aunts they had farms, and you know my degree was agriculture and food engineering, so we were exposed to a little bit of it. You were mainly crops then, were you? You were crop farming. Yeah, but I just need to back you up just a second here. So your degree was in agriculture and food what engineering. Now? Engineering, I know. Okay. And you describe a, a harvester harvesting <laughs> silage as driving through the tall grass and stuff? <laughs> it's been a long time. And as, as, as okay. I said, it, I wasn't given enough practical stuff. I loved it. We had a farm. So so UCD, that's the college where I went to, they had a farm um, about kind of 20 miles out from the college. And that was the best bit that, that I just get. Like that's when that's when my degree made sense. But we did that for like one semester and one day a week. And um, that was the only part of it that it was in my hands and I could I could see what we were talking about. But most of the time you're just sitting there getting lectured and it just doesn't work. Yeah, it, well, it doesn't work for me. I, you know, I think I think everybody's different, but certainly for me, it just so I was mediocre. I was just a very ordinary, just barely scraping through kind of um, person uh, in my in my course. And and Peter, do you was it tough for you to leave the land? Yeah, I, if you're born on a farm and raised mm. on a farm, um, certainly I wasn't able to move into like a town or a city. Yeah, that that wasn't on. So I I still live outside in the country. Um, so that's nice. But it's in the spring. There's always a few weeks where the farmers get out on the land, and I think, oh, it would be nice to spend a few days in the in a tractor, and do some work there, or or when they're harvesting, that's another great time of the year. But for the most part, I I'm happy to let other people do it, and I can just watch them. You don't jump, you don't jump in or anything. There's no kind of like, there's no like kind of like a, a text goes around. If you want to help, maybe we turn up at 11 a.m. or probably 6 a.m. or something. We, we need to pull out some potatoes. Uh, no, that doesn't quite happen. <laughs> most of the, most of the labor they need is actually quite skilled. So yeah. for them to say, oh, hey, do you want to come and show up and operate this $450,000 piece of equipment um, for free? $450,000. Are tractors that expensive? Or the harvesters oh, yes. are? Yes, are they've serious? gotten quite expensive. Oh my um, gosh. There's multiple pieces of equipment have gone, the average price is now over half a million dollars. Um, big combines, big sprayers are very expensive. Big tractors are very expensive. Um, it is, uh, it's remarkable. Holy gosh, it's a huge outlay, isn't it? So how do you compensate then for not having the land? Do you do any bit of farming yourself? Like, do you keep a little bit of a, a small plot yourself or anything? No. Well, I have a lawn that I have to keep cut. Okay. And so do you I pretend sure you're unattractive? Did you, get, did you buy well, one of those I, mini tractor I, things? I sure did. <laughs> Drive around with that thing. Make sure. Can you the cut the grass within an inch? Can you, get, can you cut the grass within an inch off, offline? Oh, I'm really good at it. But mm. no, I didn't put GPS on my lawnmower yet. Great idea, though. How big is your lawn? Oh, an acre. Oh, that's big. Okay. So All right. I guess that's 0.4 hectares. I'm sure it is. That doesn't mean anything to me until I'm standing in a field. I, I don't know. I, I know what an acre is because I lived in a cottage in the country when I lived in Cork and I was on a third of an acre. So I know what an acre is because of that. But, you know, those are just numbers when people say that you have to be in you have to be in a room or be in that area of space to know how big it is. But um, and so you do you just mentioned that you did the Luna Lunabotics, was it in NASA down in uh, NASA Kennedy? Yeah, I did that for a few years. Um, it was a great, a great contest. Uh, universities from like all over India, uh, uh, Sri Lanka, Poland, Brazil, Mexico, a bunch from the States, a few from Canada would show up. So it was a really international thing. Um, at some point they changed their policy and it was, it became an American only event. Um, so at that point I, I wasn't able to be a judge. Well, I decide not to be a judge anymore, but the contest still goes on under a slightly different name, and uh, it's still a very exciting contest. Uh, very, and there's some copycats around the world that are popping up now, which is great. These university um, challenges, the, the the tech teams where they have to go build stuff, especially when they're interdisciplinary, like like something like Lunabotics, where it's a mechanical thing, it's got a full electrical system, and of course, uh, this there's a lot of more software that goes with it. Some of the best teams are actually have fully autonomous packages, which is a remarkable achievement. Anyway, these these tech challenges and these tech teams are 
when we hire, we look for experience on those teams. I don't even really care which one. You just um, know. As long as as long as they the students are demonstrating that they are very interested in their in their their craft, I guess. Do you do do you still do um what we called outreach? Like do you still do local um activities to promote engineering or anything? Um when we first got into it, working for the last company, I was kind of the lead space guy for the company. So I would have to do all that stuff and uh, had to do a few talks to uh, different groups like Chamber of Commerce and stuff like that. I'm not saying I was great at it. Um, <laughs> one thing I know that I'm really bad at is when I had to do that talk to a, a K through eight elementary school. Oh yeah. You've um, got to be on your game. Mm-hmm. Oh yes. That was, that was, that was, that was terrifying. I would They're say. the most um, honest. That's the most honest uh, room you're ever going to be in. Like I love it. I love it about children because if they're bored, they're just, they're gone. They're gone. Well, I made sure they weren't bored. Um, but I still, uh, I still think some of them might be scarred. We actually took them after the presentation. We made sure they had a chance to go outside and they could practice driving it around. And so they, they had a good time, I think. And uh, it was a successful day, but I don't do so much of that anymore. Partly because of COVID, everything shut down. Yeah. 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 Um, but I guess it's, um, you know, I think it's, it's, it's good that you, that your company is interested in doing it anyway and, 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 and telling people about what you do. I guess, um, okay. I have two questions. I don't know which one to ask first. Yeah. First one is, uh, what about if you could, if you could, uh, look back at your 16 year old self, would you change anything? about you know how you've managed to get here is there anything that you would have just i wouldn't have done that or you know any shortcuts no because that's a dangerous game to play because mm-hmm. we everyone is where they are because of the path they took and if they took a different path they might have might have ended different if i told my 16 year old self that i was going to work in the space industry then i probably would have skipped all the very interesting stuff that i've done in the power sports or an off-road vehicle industry and if it wasn't for the off-road vehicle work that I've done, I would bring little value to the space industry because yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's you know that's the that's my specialty. So no, I wouldn't change anything. Um, uh, no, I I can't think of a thing. So it's a it's been a interesting journey, uh, but it's uh, and it's still getting more interesting. I think. Yeah, I think it's a great time, isn't it? It's a great time to be if you're interested in any of the STEM subjects. I think it's it's just such an exciting time because it's, you can see the space sector just growing and growing and growing by the day. Yeah, this it's been the last ten years have been absolutely transformative. Mm. Um, I watched, I watched another SpaceX launch, but I don't remember if it was one that was just happening or one from a month ago because they're all exactly the same now. Yeah, they and they're remarkable. And then they they land the rocket back down where they on a ship. It's like, crazy. That's okay, that's ridiculous. So. The, the cost of everything in low Earth orbit is plummeting. Um, the, the cost to get it there is just, it's going down so quickly. We would imagine that deeper space exploration, the cost will start to come down as well as as the governments start to leverage this, this private activity. Mm. In your lifetime, which they, are, Peter, which they are doing. In your lifetime, Peter, what would you like to see achieved before you, saying you have a good long healthy life we're not saying that you're going to drop your drop drop to the ground tomorrow or anything but just in your lifetime what would you like to see well i'm not sure if humans are going to successfully um colonize mars or moon there's there's tremendous technical hurdles that it sounds like a sexy thing to go visit it's one thing to have an antarctica style base not sure if we're ever going to get there it'd be interesting certainly uh Certainly, be a lot more stuff we need to develop. There'd be a lot of ISRU stuff that needs to be developed, like in situ resource utilization, getting water and building materials, and then be able to start like producing things on those on those planets. It's going to be difficult, but that is the path forward. Um, I would love to see um, some further exploration, even if it's just robotic exploration um, of of some of the other celestial bodies in our solar system yeah. uh, such as the you know some of the other moons that are out there mm. um, there's some really interesting stuff there um, so I, I just i just think this exploration phase or this exploration activity is uh, tremendously exciting um, 
Mars is certainly hasn't given us given us all her secrets yet. Actually, I guess it's his secrets. There. Mars. There. Yes, there. That's that's right. Non. The, the ginger planet holds some secrets back still. Yeah. Um, so we'll see. So that's what I hope to see, and hopefully we can participate in it. And yeah. uh, you know, now that we see that little drone flying around on Mars, I'm thinking, shoot, there goes half half my opportunity. Now they can fly around on Mars. What do they need rovers for? But I'll, I'll continue to uh, hold out hope. Yeah. Well, they've kind of become the you know the bedrock of the whole thing, really. So they'll always be needed. They'll always be needed. And you'd always make one anyway, in case they well, that don't. makes me feel better. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant stuff, Peter. Okay, I have one last question. One really ask one very quick one. Do you have a workshop in your house at home? Oh, absolutely. I have a work. Oh, yes. When I stopped being a mechanic, I didn't throw away all my tools. I just <gasps> took them and set them up at home. I have I have uh, motorcycles that I have to keep running. I have bicycles that I have to stay running. I do. I have what four cars on my property right now. There is oh everything. And everything's breaking down at the same time sometimes. <laughs> so no, I, I spend a lot of time, uh, tools in my hand still. And do you, uh, do you have any pet projects? Do you make stuff just for the sheer crack? Well, some very exciting news there in our office. We just had a contest who could make the best ping pong paddle. <laughs> so we just did that. That was quite exciting. Um, did you use, is it balsa wood? I, 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 is it balsa wood that you make ping pong paddles out of or, or? Did you make one out of aluminium well, or something weird? The the rule was you couldn't use any uh, material that was already on a ping pong paddle. So I used a combination of carbon fiber and mahogany called carbo mahogany, um, <laughs> along with some uh, special uh, rubber outside. So it grips the ball. Anyway, it's a fantastic project. People in my group, everyone got to make one. Somebody made one out of pizza. That was really innovative. Um, so we tried to do uh, some of these little silly silly projects once in a while just everyone just trying to make something that's great oh that's great yeah oh that's great yeah I, I would like a workshop I have to say that is one thing when you live minimally I do miss my I do miss a workshop but Louis, thank you so much for for talking to us and um I'm sure that we'll see your name on a rover sometime soon in one of those celestial objects maybe one of the moons of Jupiter or Saturn who knows Sure, sounds like a plan. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right, thanks, Peter. Yeah, no worries. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Humans of Space podcast from the makers of BBC Sky Night magazine. For more of our podcasts, head to skynightmagazine.com or search for us on iTunes, Acast, Spotify, or your usual podcast provider. 